Hello and welcome to Elevating Founders, the podcast for early stage founders to hear the stories behind the change makers and disruptors in the tech sector who are responsible for tackling the world's biggest challenges brought to you by London Tech Week. My name is Sina Sadzada. I'm the new host of the podcast and I can't wait to speak to you guys more throughout the series. If you want to find out more about me, I have my own podcast called The Millennial Entrepreneur where we talk about young entrepreneurship and I'll be hosting the majority of the episodes in this series and I can't wait. We're also going to have some special guest hosts of the podcast throughout the series to lead the conversations through their world-leading entrepreneurial knowledge and experience, like the episode today. So in today's episode, we revisit a fireside chat during Elevating Founders at London Tech Week in September 2021 with Jacqueline DeRocas, president of Tech UK, in conversation with Darktrace CEO Poppy Gustafsson. Named Europe's ninth fastest growing European company by the Financial Times, as well as fastest growing super scale-up by TechTour, the conversation explores Darktrace's growth story with some of the pivotal moments and decisions behind IPOing as the next stage of growth, the benefits of listing in London, and the importance of sharing expertise with those looking to scale to encourage growth in the UK. It's a fantastic episode. I can't wait for you guys to hear it. So without further ado, on hand of Jacqueline to take it away. Hello, my name is Jacqueline DeRocas, president of Tech UK, and I'm delighted to be here at London Tech Week, specifically at the Elevating Founders Europe Forum. And I'm specifically delighted to be joined by Poppy Gustafsson, the CEO at Darktrace. And we are going to be focusing on the path to becoming a UK powerhouse. So what's it going to take to create and deliver big tech companies in the UK context? So welcome, Poppy. Delighted to be having this conversation with you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So I'm going to kick off with a a question I'm sure you've answered many times, but tell us a little bit about the Dark Trace story and what you do. It'll be a pleasure. So yes, Dark Trace, uh, at its heart, Dark Trace is a sort of fundamental technology company. And we were founded here in Cambridge, where I'm sat today, in 2013. And really, it was a meeting of minds between two groups of people. So on one hand, we had sort of an elite team of cyber experts. On the other side was some mathematicians that were specialists in the field of machine learning and AI. And together, they realized that this mathematics could be applied to the challenge of cyber. That was the birth of Darktrace almost, in fact, more than eight years ago now. And today we're a public company listed in London, having completed our IPO and we are busy protecting things like critical data and uh, critical national infrastructure for organizations all over the world. So we count more than 5,000 customers with us. Um, I think it's an incredibly exciting to be place to be in sort of cybersecurity. I'll just give you a little sort of thing, a story about some of the things that we're sort of identifying. And what I really love about cyber is it's that real crossover between technology and the real world. And you see that in the types of sort of threats that you find. And we had a great case earlier this year where you're, we were protecting some of the infrastructure around um, prison systems. And from that digital side, we were able to spot some unusual activity that was happening within a prison infrastructure where someone was accessing information that they weren't usually accessing. And as a consequence of our technology, we were able to identify that and stop that. 
And then subsequently, it turned out what it happened. It was a janitor within this correctional facility that was actually trying to get hold of data that they wouldn't normally have got, which was the witness protection information. And they're trying to sort of get hold of sort of witness protection. And it's just such an exciting space to be in, to see how this technology is solving problems, not only in the cyberspace, but also in the real world. So it's a really sort of exciting area to be in right now. Isn't it? And it's always that human intervention piece, which is the piece that always get you. I think it's 70% of all threats in the threat landscape come from internal to an organisation. And that just goes to the heart of where we need to be vigilant and where we need to use technology to be vigilant. And they are fast as well, right? Because it's not just the good guys that's using the technology, it's attackers too. And, you know, some of these attacks aren't necessarily difficult to spot something like ransomware is very very noisy but it's incredibly fast so if you're yeah. relying on people they us humans just can't respond at the pace that technology can oh, it's a really good point and so when you think about the dark trace journey you know are there particular are there key moments in the growth story i mean because it didn't go from zero to hero overnight i mean there must have been bumps and lumps and and key moments that really mattered there were. And these key moments, you only ever recognise them with hindsight, don't you? At the time, you don't necessarily that they know what how pivotal they were. And one of the things that we do is, you know, one of the, a big part of what we do today is a, a, autonomous response. So that part of where not only are you spotting threats, but you're using that technology to sort of surgically interrupt them. And today that feels completely logical like we understand that that's the only way that you're going to keep pace with the threat and you know our technology is currently doing interrupting a cyber threat once every second but when we first invented that that was completely different there was no one else doing that out in the market and we were really sort of challenging and there was a lot of perception of oh you know are the humans in the system going to want the technology to make all these autonomous decisions and it was quite a you know it's a real sort of challenging area to sort of break through and say, you know, you know, the only way we're going to be able to solve this is by actually allowing technology, AI that's live within your business to be able to actively make decisions. And today, obviously, that's a huge part of what we do and feels like a sort of really sort of pivotal moment, sort of breaking through in terms of these world class technologies. But it, what the decision wasn't so obvious at the time. Yeah, and I, I totally understand the hindsight piece because that's how we that's how we go back and learn. But you did choose to IPO. You got so big, you chose to IPO. What what, what made you make that decision? What why did you IPO at that particular time? I think about an IPO is I think sometimes people get stuck in a habit of thinking that that's the destination and that's a goal. And once you IPO, like you've done it and you've but for us, it's just the start of this next phase of growth. And we've got so many great ideas coming out of our R&D centre in Cambridge that for us being able to IPO meant that we would be able to access the financing to really expand on that R&D team. And that's exactly what we've done. So we're very heavily invested in our, in our R&D team in Cambridge and we're really growing that out. And having that IPO meant that we were really able to do that much more quickly. Yeah. So it's about having access to more resources so that you could do the things that you really wanted to do uh, for expansion purposes. So so then begs the question, why would you choose to list in London? I mean, for a lot of people will be listening to this thinking, you know, OK, I want to grow. IPO may or may not be the destination for them and totally 
um, get the piece that you wanted in IPO in order to be um, much more able to grow even further. But why London? For us, London always felt like the really obvious decision. I mean, this is a company that was founded in Cambridge in the UK. So being in the UK made sense. And also the UK's got such a formidable history, not only in cybersecurity, but in AI more generally, things like, you know, Bletchley Park to GCHQ. And then you've got all these sort of technology greats like Alan Turing and being part of that sort of AI heritage and where that's taking us to today and that sort of cutting edge application of AI. It felt an important piece to be part of that narrative. And for us, it was, you know, a completely logical decision. And we've had a very warm reception into the public markets. And it's something that, you know, I'm really proud to be sort of representing UK technology assets. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally get the history piece. And, I, and I'm, I'm thinking now about, you know, the UK has created over 100 technology unicorns. So companies worth over a billion dollars. Um, and, and they've done that in contrast, Germany's got 42 unicorns, France 22, Netherlands 18. So, and all of them less than the UK combined actually. So, you know, I think when you think about that, how, how can we, how do we create tech unicorns in this country? And, and you know, what, what does it take to get there? Oh, it's such an, it's such an interesting question, isn't it? And I think, I, I, I agree with you. I think we do already. There are some fantastic companies coming out of the UK and you see them a lot in Cambridge. You sort of look the startups sort of seeded from some of the you know creations that come out of the university, for example, in London and Edinburgh. You see these brilliant companies coming up and it feels like it's that sort of scaling up phase. So we've got no end of, no lack of sort of entrepreneurs and people that I speak to, there's full of people that are really got some interesting ideas. They're very good at sort of then sort of commercializing in that early phase. In the sort of past five to 10 years, there's always a conversation about scaling up these organizations. How do we sort of create that sort of aspiration to stop them selling out too early? And personally, I think we've done a really good job of that in the UK. I think there's much more access to finance than there, than there was. And then that final piece of the jigsaw is to be able to make sure that the London public markets is a really logical next step for places to come. And it becomes that no brainer decision for UK technology companies to list here in the UK rather than going elsewhere. And I think as a, as a nation, we've taken some really good steps at things like the Hill Review into the London Stock Exchange. And this is all about making that a really logical decision to keep your growth journey here within the UK rather than necessarily taking it somewhere else. Yeah, and we've got a really trusted legal framework, haven't we? We've got really trusted regulatory framework, which in the most part keeps keeps pace with, with tech. Um, and I suppose, you know, you have got that UK-European investor relationship where you can expand if you needed to. So there's quite a lot going on, I would suggest here too. Do you think the UK has got some weaknesses that we also need to be aware of that we could do more of to encourage more growth? I think when I see companies coming out of the UK, I think I think one of the things that we're very good at in the UK is that we, like we're forced to trade internationally relatively early on in, in that sort of life cycle. So you're being trading into across Europe, you'll be likely trading into the US, you get used to that sort of global trade fairly early on in your life cycle. And if you compare that to a 
company that's coming out of Silicon Valley, for example, they might be trading internationally later on in their journey. So you're doing that earlier on in, in your maturity. And that's a real sort of opportunity, I think, for UK companies because they sort of get used to that quickly. When I compare us to what you see coming out of the US typically, I think another benefit of the UK is that it is less it is less noisy. There is less, you know, marketing dollars being spent to sort of fanfare yourself as the biggest and best thing to come out. So it's easier to make a statement perhaps in the UK than it would be in Silicon Valley, where everyone is vying for the for that attention. But that's sort of almost the downside of that is that, you know, British companies can be less good at sort of fanfaring their success, a little bit sort of stereotypically humble in a way that isn't necessarily helpful if you're trying to sort of really talk about the aspirations of your organisations and the ambitions that you have. And so that's the sort of counter side. And what you see out the US is they're forced to be much bolder in terms of their sort of marketing vision and voice and presence just because there's so much going on there. Yeah. And we and that that humility, that humble stance that we we take as British leaders and British companies, we tend to also spend less in that marketing space. It's not quite so important. On the other hand, we do face into quite a challenging press, don't we here? So that which is which can be unforgiving from a from a journalist, uh, journalistic perspective. But it's an important part. I mean, you can never change that. You kind of have to sort of lean into it and accept that as part of our sort of national identity. And it's right that, you know, We've got the press there keeping an eye and holding us to account and that's it's that you're not going to change all of that i think that yeah. that's just something that happens i love the way you elegantly glide over that that's great and it's <laughs> the right way to deal with it I, I love it and and what about the listing rules you know the listing rules themselves sometimes are perceived to be an issue for founders in a, in a number of areas including like free float and dual class and timetable so you know, are there things that we need to do to evolve and to smooth that path for those that come after after this? I think I think there are. And I think that work is being undertaken, certainly with things like the Hill Review and the free float, for example, is a great example. So the free float is, you know, what percentage of your business is going to be in public hands at your point of IPO? And typically, if you're going to have a large free float, that would require some of your existing shareholders to sell into that IPO. Now, if you're a fast growth company that's still early on in your aspirations and you've still got a sort of long path ahead of you about everything you're trying to achieve, finding those shareholders that are ready to get off the bus and hand over to someone else, you know, can be quite challenging. They want to be there with you and carry on this journey with you. This is just another sort of rung in the ladder as, as you head upwards. And so I think the the review to sort of reduce that and make that free float requirement reduced means it will be more desirable for those fast growth companies that don't necessarily have shareholders that want to sell out at the point of IPO. Yeah. And 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 then when you think about that whole listing journey, would you, and I guess it's a question for hindsight and foresight here, the US is attractive, um, attractive as a market. But is it is it in a sense a false notion to think the size of the market is is the whole, is part of the destination journey? Because when you go when you IPO in the US, you get that market opportunity as well. What what would you say to that, Poppy? Uh, I don't think that's necessarily true. I think you can still get access into that market wherever you IPO. I think you know 
news travels, investors travel, that's, that's relatively easy to do. From my own personal experience, having uh, listed here in, in the UK, I have to say I get a lot of value from talking to investors and potential investors. I mean, it's a great process, like you're just chatting about your business and your ideas and you're getting that real time feedback and someone's sort of holding up the mirror about what they see and making observations about your business. That is hugely valuable. Like personally, you come out with a whole bunch of really interesting, oh, I wonder if we do explore that, how that would work. And so being on the same time zones as those investors and being in the same country as them is helpful because it does mean you've got that cohort of people that that you can sort of share ideas and reflect with. And so I wonder if that would be necessarily the same if you're based in the UK, but your investors are predominantly in the US, you perhaps have less access. I think any organisation really, you'd want a nice sort of balanced geographic mix of investors so you've got the best of both worlds yeah yeah and and you can uh, clearly we can do that from like we're on a great time zone aren't we here yeah 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 definitely and you know I have a question around um talent actually you I'm hearing that there is a war on talent that it's hard to retain people I'm curious about your experience at Dark Trace and 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 whether you're seeing wage inflation and you know lots of people are saying it's hard to grow their businesses because of this so what what's the dark trace experience i mean dark trace exists as a consequence of skills shortage like there's just not enough human beings to go around to help solve the problem of cybersecurity so that's the whole reason that we are obviously using technology to solve that problem today so I have grown a business in an industry where there isn't enough skills. I can't rely on going out there and hiring, you know, people with a decade's worth of cyber experience because there's just not enough of those people around. So at Dartrace, we made a decision very early on that we couldn't let that get in the way of our growth aspirations. And we had to think quite creatively about how we were going to provide the skills and the resource and talent to get the business to where we wanted to be able to do it today. And for that, it meant creating that own pool of talent. So we hired some fantastic, you know, we've got some amazing double PhD mathematicians here in Cambridge that are doing some brilliant work, but we sit them alongside other bright and capable people that come from a range of different backgrounds. We've got sort of microbiologists in there and suddenly you're able to give them the sort of cyber skills that they need but what they bring is a whole different perspective to what it is you're trying to achieve and some sort of different ideas. And that's really exciting for me because I think that that's where true innovation happens at that sort of intersection between sort of technological ability and sort of creative application of that technology. And so that's sort of really exciting. And that's something that we've continued to do. So we're very, very strong on bringing in bright and capable people and then equipping with them with the skills that they need to do their job. So you're growing your own, you're retaining your double PhDs for quite a long time, I imagine. Yeah, again, because again, being in the UK, cybersecurity is a fantastic space to be in, cutting edge applications of mathematics. If that's your world, it's a really sort of interesting place to be in. And yeah. the competition for talent is far less than it would be on, say, Silicon Valley, where you've worked somewhere for four months and then everyone's tapping on their shoulder and trying them to bring them along to the next organisation. There's not so much competition for talent here, which is another one of the benefits of being in the UK. And I love what you're saying about bringing together those really deep 
minds, deep dark minds um, on PhD mathematics and then really bright new talent. That speaks to diversity as your competitive advantage almost, I think I'm hearing. Am I right about that? I, I just think it's like one of the things that we've always done well, and I try and entrench into the culture of the organisation, is just really challenging the status quo. And we're in a great place to be able to do that because we're solving problems that haven't been done before. So it's not a path that's been pre-trodden that we're following along. We're going and finding our way all the time these are always new problems around solving so it's an, it's a good place to be doing that and sort of really challenging it and I have to keep reminding myself even with this mindset about not inheriting those preconceptions about who you hire and who will be good at what kind of job and we've got a like, great example um, it's actually uh, probably 18 months or so ago now where we did a capture the flag competition, which is like a sort of treasure hunt for cyber analysts. So, you know, they sort of try and sort of do a sort of uh, hack to find these sort of cyber clues. And it's a great sort of internal training initiative and everyone loves it. And it's, it's a good fun. And as you can imagine here at Dartrace, we've got a whole bunch of people that have got lots of lots of cyber experience. They could be coming from GCHQ or the likes and they're brilliant and they're very, very good at what they do. But as you say, we also grow our own homegrown talent. And the person that won this competition was this brilliant woman that we recruited originally in Singapore to be within the marketing team. And she wanted to have a go at a slightly more technical job. So she transferred over to being a cyber analyst. And as a consequence, she just consumed all this training that she could get her hands onto. She was like a sponge. And she'd only been doing this job for four or five months and she came in and she absolutely wiped the floor at this cyber competition you know really showed all these other sort of serious GCHQers she was like no I've done it cleared up and completely won this competition and I thought that was great because you wouldn't necessarily think where am I going to find this next generation of amazingly talented cyber analysts I'm going to look in my marketing team but that's where she came from we gave her the chance and she did absolutely phenomenally so I think that's a great example of you know talent isn't often found in places that you don't normally expect yeah you just but creating the space for for it to grow and thrive really matters so diversity matters everybody for for whoever's listening um so just as we finish this conversation poppy do you have any examples uh, any practical advice for people watching who are desperately trying to grow their companies um, looking at Darktrace and thinking, right, I could be a tech unicorn. You know, I was talking with the Chancellor recently in an interview and, and, you know, his belief, our belief is that technology will drive the economic recovery of this country. It's going to be the heart of every business that we build. So I'm curious about whether you've got practical advice for those people who are building their businesses in the UK. I think one of the things for me is, it's growth. Like with, when you're a fast growth organization, very, very quickly your business changes all around you and you reflect back on how you looked 12 months ago and it was a very, very different type of organization. And dealing with that sort of scale can be quite a challenge in itself. And my advice would be whenever you've got those fast growth teams, there's always someone in your business that that's that real superstar that you go to for everything. Like, are the printers broken? I need someone to fix that. Or I need someone to talk to this customer that understands this. Or can someone? And it's always that sort of same go to person. And we've all got them in our businesses, those people. I always refer to them to them as 
Brian because I don't necessarily have anyone at the moment in my team called Brian. So it's a nice sort of <laughs> non-specific name. But the trick is to look in your business and identify those Brian's, i.e. the people that are just doing everything. And then your job as a leader or a manager is to almost make Brian redundant and think, what is Brian doing all day? And how do I put a team or a structure or a process around Brian so that Brian's now redundant? And what that means is Brian then scurries off and finds the next problem in the business. And then you follow him through and sort of adds structure around whatever it happens to be that Brian's doing. But if you don't do that, Brian very quickly becomes your gating factor to your ability to scale because yeah. suddenly everything has to pass through Brian's hands. And if Brian's busy, sick, ill, doing something else, suddenly all of your growth is constrained by Brian's capacity. So it's your job to sort of follow Brian through and replace whatever he's doing day to day with a team of people that that can do it perhaps less efficiently, but allowing him to then focus on the or her on the next aspect within the business to, to solve. Yeah. And, and use automation, obviously, to exactly to, to really create that pace in the business as you create the growth. And, that, you know, obviously, from our conversation earlier around you know using marketing as well to showcase your abilities, make more noise about your success, um, because we don't we don't do that so well. And I think we talked about that earlier. So I think coupled with automate more, you know, don't create that gating factor in the business. What's holding you back um, will set you free if you, if you tackle it. Um, invest in marketing in some way. And yeah, let's use technology to drive economic growth in this country. We've, we've got what it takes. We've got the innovation and the innovative spirit in this country. And we've got I heard you say the expertise and experience in international trading as well. It's in our DNA. We're used to looking outwards, not inwards. And I think that of itself will be uh, a big boost to those listening. And share, share your experiences. I think, you know, going through the IPO for me was an invaluable experience. And I benefited so much from chatting to other CEOs that have been through the process. And I think we've all got an obligation to sort of share in these experiences to help the next generation of businesses that are coming up and perhaps doing the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Your network really matters and and we want to lift them up and but they will be standing on the shoulders of giants. So Poppy, thank you very much for joining us today at the um, Elevating Founders Europe Forum. And we wish you lots of luck with your accelerated growth and we'll be watching um, your journey as you walk forward. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure to be here. So that's it for this week's episode of Elevating Founders. I hope you enjoyed. If you have any questions or comments, head over to our social channels, links in the show notes to join the conversation or email us at elevatingfounders at informer.com. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, wherever you listen. And we'll see you in the next episode. My name is Mencina Sadzada. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. See you later.